separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for the signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. Wait a second, I just lost my trip, please. <laughs> um, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to the beast, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant of food for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host with them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Please remain standing, and let's pray for our message today. 
Heavenly Father, you are marvelous. You are wonderful. You are such a God of amazing creation. And we just thank you and we praise you that we have the privilege of being your people. We ask that you would anoint the lips of this preacher today, that our ears would be open to hear the word that you want to speak to each of us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> what an amazing passage of scripture. If you've not been exposed to it before, keep reading Genesis. It's really remarkable. I know in our world today, um, many see um, the books of Moses and Genesis in general as a nice story, um, wishful thinking, right? but not true, not real. And what we see in Genesis is an amazing historical account of the creation of heaven and earth at God's mighty hand and his creative power. Last week we talked a little bit about why it's reasonable for us to even believe in God at all and why we believe that um, the presence of um, all the things around us demands a creator. So we're not going to get into that again. I hope that if you have questions like that, you can come talk to us or maybe refer to that. Um, there's really good resources online, too, as well, um, that we can point you to. Um, last time I, I spoke, basically last week we're going through the book of Genesis, and we spoke about the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's basically, that was basically our text last week. And we made some brief observations about this, just to, to review a little bit, um, that everything in the material universe had a beginning, um, that God's existence is both assumed and logical, and that he's the author of all the created things. Um, it's very simple, very simple sermon, but that's basically what it was about, um, to believe in God and to believe that the world that we live in had a beginning, um, and to believe that the beginning was authored by God um, is both reasonable and necessary to life. We saw that the end of the story, and this was perhaps the, my, my favorite part of last week's sermon, the end of the story is a return and transformation to the beginning of the story, that God's intention in creation is fully realized and completed when, he retur when Christ returns. This week I want to talk about the days of creation, and we can see these described in the, the chapter 1 of Genesis, a bit of chapter 2, which you just heard. And I think what should be immediately appreciated um, about this passage of scripture is just the poetic beauty, the awe of this account, um, just the, the, the majesty of God as he's presented. So many wonderful things um, are, are given to us here, beautiful vocabulary and repetition and restatement and just literary order, um, unique, would have been unique um, for the ancient world to have an account like this about God, that there is one God who created all things, because um, Moses lived in a world that was extremely polytheistic. They believed in many, many, many gods, um, of which uh, many things in the, the material universe came from uh, lots of different ones of them. So this, have, this would have really been um, culturally shocking uh, for the culture at the time to hear an account like this. But also it's just poetically beautiful and unique, um, the way in which Moses words um, this account of the creation the technical, uh, the, the, way, the way in which, another example is the way in which God is described um, containing just like these striking anthropomorphisms, they call it, in theology. And that just basically means God being described in such a way as to be understood, right? So 
giving him human attributes. The arm of God, the eye of God, the voice of God. God is not like us. God is spirit, but he's being described like us so that we can understand him. God said, God saw, God rested repeatedly. We see a benediction. Did you know this? Did you see this? And God blessed, and God blessed, and God blessed. God saw that it was good, and he blessed it. And God saw that it was good, and he blessed it. We see a picture of God that is more than a simple engineer or architect. He's more than even a powerful, all-knowing creator and author. In Genesis 1, I think we see a father. A father that loves his progeny. American icon Walt Disney, I'm sure you all have heard of him, he once said this, I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it all started with a mouse. (laughs) And he once said, I love Mickey Mouse more than any woman I've ever known. (laughs) The rest of that quote, he says, I find women boring. Right? Then I was like, was... That, uh, it, I read this quote once from, from Walt Disney, and I'm like, was he married? I wonder if he was married. And then I, I looked it up online. And was like, he was married for over 40 years to a woman named Lillian, and I wonder how she felt when she heard him say this. Walt, excuse me. <laughs> I love Mickey Mouse more than any woman I've ever known. Just very interesting. Mickey, but Mickey was his creation. Mickey was the first thing that he thought of and kind of presented to the world. And he fought for Mickey's purity. Didn't want people changing him or messing with him or messing with the idea in general. It was his masterpiece. And he loved that mouse because of it. And friends, I want you to think about this because I hope that we can never lose sight of one thing. That it all started with some simple words. And God said, and it was. And that God who authored us in all things loves us. Isn't that incredible? That he loves you. He loves you. You say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that have happened to me. Friend, for God so loved this world, that's you, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The creator of heaven and earth loves you. Wow. What we have in Genesis is the start of more than just a creation story. And it's more than just, as Christians, I think we believe this, a truthful account of how the world began. It wasn't simply written just so that we would know how stuff started. God wrote this to us because he is demonstrating his love for us. He's showing to us That he loves us. It's not just itching our curiosity of the way things work. You see, God is identifying himself as creator, Lord, and master, the intelligent designer, the one who by which all things were made and for whom all things were made. He's telling us all this because he wants us to know his great power and love. And, I, and I'm convinced of this because of the way in which Genesis chapter 1 reads. And God blessed. And God saw that it was good. 
all this language of love and compassion for the things that he has made. And God said, and it was so. And God said, it was good. And God said, blessing. He blessed, right? And God said, fill the earth. And God said, care for the earth. And God said, rule over the earth. We see all of this. And this all points to, I think, a very simple notion that God is love. And God said, love. And it was so. It was so. Because there's a God, all things are so. Because there's a God, we have a brain to think with. Well, some of us. Because, <laughs> present company excluded. Um, because there's a God, all, we have a brain to think with. We have a heart to love with. We have power to build with and create. Because there's a God, all things are so. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By his word, the heavens were made and all their hosts, and it was so. Incredible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which we discussed last week, we have a summary statement of the creation account which follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 unpack the details of that statement. What, is, what did that actually look like? And at this, we're told that the created thing was firstly without form and void. Without form and void. And that's in verse 2. The phrase refers to the earth as unformed and unfilled. We might say that the creation was um, an, uninhabitable, an uninhabitable habitation, right? Uh, uh, an uninhabitable place like a kingdom or a colony. It's not ready to be lived in. But also that the creation is uninhabited by way of implication. If it's not ready to be lived in, then there can't be life. So the inhabitants are yet to be there. So God first needed to make the world inhabitable. That's a suitable place to live. And then fill it with inhabitants. He forms his creation and then he fills his creation. And we can see an example of this up on the screen in um, a very beautiful way in which to see the days of creation. We see two triads in which God progressively creates. On the first side, you have days one through three. And on the second side, you have days four through six. And you can kind of see them correspond. The first column, we see th those things that are unformed, um, that are now formed, that are their habitations or kingdoms. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be a sky and a firmament and a sea. You see, a kingdom, a place for fish to live and rule. And day three, a dry land, a vegetation, a place, a habitation. And then in, in days four through six, you see the inhabitants of those habitations. God is filling these places with people and things. So day four, he creates the sun and the moon. God, God, in day one, God creates the light. Day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he creates the birds and the fish, you see, and these are ruling over the sky and the sea. They're filling the habitation. This is actually a kind of a, a, an easy way to remember the days of creation because they sort of match. In day six, what, what would you expect there to be created if God has created the land and vegetation? Well, I think we would sort of expect now God is going to fill that with inhabitants. God is going to create land animals and bugs 
that we all hate and human beings, which sometimes we hate. Um, so he's filling that land, right? So what we have is God forming and filling, forming and filling. God forms the lights, the skies. He forms the seas. He forms the lands, and then he fills them. Because God is the author, not just of things, but of life. And not just of life, but a ruler, a ruling. The fish rule over the sea, the skies, the birds rule over the skies, and man rules over the land and everything else that has been created. You see, again, this is pointing to, if you recall, a sermon we preached recently, that the, that the point of the Bible, the reason God does anything, is to establish his kingdom, that he is king and he rules justly and righteously over his created thing, his kingdom. And it's typified by, for us by example, when God creates the created inhabitants, he creates them to rule over the sea, to rule over the sky, to rule over the land, to be in imitation of the ruler, the king, you see? Pointing to his authority and love. So in the first three days of creation, God forms creation. Isaiah 45, 18 tells us that God does not create anything to be unformed and unfilled. So in the first three days, God is forming and And then in the second three days, he is filling. So to transition, I think it's important now to ask a question that theologians, I think, have wrestled with for some centuries. That some, some, I think, even in this room, perhaps, have wrestled with to know how does science correspond and complement the message of Scripture or the teaching of Scripture. It's an important thing for us to discuss So right now I want to actually talk about the days of creation as if they were literal or not. And there's a debate about this in our world today amongst Christians. Were these actual 24-hour days of time, 24-hour periods of time each day, or are they more representative of an extended period of time of which we don't know, um, but uh, is clear that has a beginning and an end? And why is this important to answer this question? Well, if it can be proven that the earth is older than what the Bible would suggest if you take these days literally, then why would an unbeliever trust the Bible when he knows this to be false? And let's say it differently. If we can't trust the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, then why should we trust John chapter 3 verse 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If Genesis 1 is wrong, then how do we know John chapter 3 is right? You see the problem here? If we know logically that something is incorrect, uh, something that the Bible is saying is incorrect, and we know that, then, then how can we trust any of it? And it, it's, a, it, it's a question that I think we all have to contend with as Christians. St. August, Augustine, he lived in the 3rd or 4th century, um, so early, early on in church history. He said this, If they find a Christian, he's talking about unbelieving people, if they find a Christian mistaken, in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, when they think their pages are full of falsehoods? See what he's saying? And on facts which they themselves have learnt from experience and the light of reason. To defend their utterly foolish and obviously untrue statements 
they will try to call upon the Holy Scripture for proof and even recite from memory many passages which they think support their position, although they understand neither what they say nor the things about which they make assertions. You see, this is why this is an important question. We have to, answer, we have to be careful in making demands sometimes in what the Bible says about science and origins if the Bible really doesn't answer those questions. So I know, um, by the way, um, that Augustine's words are, are, are kind of harsh, if you notice that, right? He uses some harsh language, so please, he said it, not me. So get mad at him. Um, he uses some harsh language, and I just want to say that I don't think that Christians that believe that the earth is young, you know, that's, a, that's a popular thing in the church and Christianity, that I don't think they're ignorant and I don't think they're foolish. Um, I think that they, they ground what they believe the scripture, this belief on what they believe the scripture teaches. And I respect that. I respect a people, anyone that has a, a respect for the authority of scripture. But I, re- I repeat his words here simply to demonstrate that as Christians we need to be careful, uh, like I said earlier, in making harsh scientific demands on the basis of the scripture text when the, Bi- when the Bible, um, according to itself, is not a science book. Right? So we have to be very careful and like this is exactly how God created the inchworm. What you, we, we just have to tread cautiously and be informed about what the Bible actually says before, um, before we tell a, an unbelieving world something that they know to be untrue. Okay? I want to propose to you all that the Bible, like I said, is not a science book, even though I'm not saying that it doesn't tell us things about science that are, that, that are true. But it, it simply doesn't do this exhaustively for us or in much detail because the Bible is more interested in the message of how we relate to God as his creation. Some, of, some people have said that the days of creation are six literal 24-hour periods of time. So we have to ask the question, is that what the, the author intended when he wrote these things. If it's true, then the earth should be relatively new. It should be about 6,000 years old because we know how old Adam was when he died and there are extensive genealogies. So we can just do the math. So if the, if the six days of creation are true, um, then, or, or, or excuse me, if the six days of creation are 24-hour periods of time, then the earth should be relatively young. Because... We know, like I said, how old Adam was, and we have these genealogies. We should be able to just do the math and say the, the, the earth is approximately seven or 8,000 years old, whatever the number is. But it seems to me that the Bible simply just doesn't tell us how long it took God to create the heavens and the earth. The earth, in my opinion, according to Scripture, could be very young or it could be very old. It just doesn't tell us. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that to you this morning. Um, the first reason I think that is is that there's a distinct possibility of an unknown period of time between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1, and the earth was formless and void. Um, that, that word for was, that, you know, that helping verb or state of being verb, um, can be translated became, the earth became. And if that's the accurate translation, there's, that sort of implies a, a changing, a time. And it doesn't tell us how long that period of time was. See? So th- there is almost, even if the seven days of creation are 24-hour periods of time, there is this, there's this room this, for more time to be present throughout the process, I think. Second, 
It's also unknown how long Adam and Eve were in the garden prior to their sin. The Bible doesn't tell us that. So what we know from the Bible is that the wages of sin is death. So before sin, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, they never would have died. God's intention was for them not to die. So my point is we don't know the, 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 the period of time that existed between the creation of Adam and Eve to when they actually started dying. Does that make sense? So how long could that have been? See, in other words, this is inviting a, another question of maybe there's more time in Genesis 1 than we think. Okay? Um, third, also it's important to realize that even genealogies aren't always complete. This person begat, that person begat, that person begat, that person. It's not always an exhaustive list of every son, grandson, great-grandson, etc. Oftentimes genealogies are only hitting like major figures in a family line. So, so in other words, there are gaps in genealogies. We also know in Genesis that people were living a very long time, 1,000 years, 800 years, 900 years, things like this. So how many people were skipped in that genealogy? We just don't know. So another, another thing that could invite more time than we think. Okay? Finally, and I think most importantly, and there, there are arguments for and against the things that I just said, but I think the linchpin for me is this last one. I don't think that there's a compelling indication that the days of creation were actually 24-hour periods of time. And that's what I want to try to um, prove to you this morning with Scripture. Um, the, fir- the first reason here is, and you'll see these up on the screen, that the, I, I want to argue for um, that the days of creation were not 24-hour periods of time, but an extended period of time which we don't know how long it was. And the first reason, uh, the first thing I should say about this, this isn't a proof, but this is not new. This idea um, is not new in Christianity, I mean. Uh, Augustine believed this. I just quoted him. So this, is, this idea has been around for almost 2,000 years, that the, day, that the six, seven days of creation were not actually six 24-hour periods of time. Charles Hodge, Dr. A.A. A. Hodge, James Orr, Dr. B.B. Warfield, just to name a few, very, very, very scholarly, brilliant people who all held this view. Now, it doesn't prove anything that smart people believed it, but it does kind of show us that, um, that, th- that there were reasons that they believed it. And, th- and I think um, that's what I want to try to demonstrate now. The first, the first reason, or number two, I should say, is that days one through three are not literal 24-hour periods of time. And how do I know this? Well, it's very simple. What was created on day four? The sun. The sun and the moon were created on day four. How can there be a morning and evening without a sun and a moon? Right? So we know right off the bat that there's some kind of imagery here. There's some some kind of symbolism happening here. There can't be a morning and an evening without a sun or a moon. How can there be a 24-hour day? That's how we track days with the sun and the moon. There is no sun and moon yet till day four. So we know that there's, there's got to be some kind of like poetic point to this rather than just a blanket how-to God created everything. Is it possible that, is, that the language is meant to be more poetic? In other words, to convey that God began and that he finished. You see, is Jesus a vine? I am the vine, you are the... Br- no. He's not a vine and we're not branches, but he is our source of life, which we depend on. You see, it's an image. See? 
So the morning and the evening to me indicates that there is a start and finish, that God is the author and completer of creation. It's less interested with how long it took him, but rather that he did it. He started it and finished it, see? And that's beautiful, poetically, if you think about it. Number three, the seventh day is clearly not a literal 24-hour day period either. And we know this because of Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath day, the day of rest for God, is perpetual. It never ends. So it's 2,400 million gazillion years. It's not one 24-hour period. God didn't create for six days rest, then create for six more days rest, create for... There was one creative week for God. You see, and that creative week for God is an extended period of time with a beginning and an ending, and it's not necessarily exactly the same as our week. You see? So God, since the creation, has been resting from his creative work because it's done. So these are days from, I think, a divine perspective, not an earthly one. God's week happened once, and ours, how many people know in this room, happen over and over again. We go back to work every Monday, right? What do they call that? Monday, uh, they call it something? I don't know. We don't like it. Someone's, we got the case of the Mondays, right? Um, <laughs> right? So our week, our week happens over and over again. God's week is, his, his creative week is finished, and he is at rest from his creation. Number four, I use this kind of heavy college word, um, before, so the anthropomorphisms abound in Genesis chapter 1. And these point to a non-literal day. But basically, that's a big word that means that God is being described as possessing human qualities. God doesn't really have arms or eyes like us. The author is just trying to help us understand in a relatable way what God is doing. And God said, does God have vocal cords? He called the light day. Did he not have a word for it before that, and he just made one up? And God saw, does God have eyes? God rested. Was he tired? Right? You see what I mean? There's this obvious imagery here. There's, there's poetry happening. Chapter, uh, excuse me, point number five. If Genesis 1 were 24-hour periods of time, six days sequentially, it's inconceivable that in Genesis 2, which retells the same creation account, would all of a sudden drop it. There is no 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 2. It's almost as as if Genesis chapter 2 is telling a different story altogether about creation than Genesis chapter 1. Why is that? Some people people have claimed that it's because the Bible is contradicting itself, right? That, That the Bible actually was written, Genesis was written by different authors, and that author didn't get the memo about what the first author wrote, so he wrote a completely different creation account in Genesis chapter 2. Critics say this about the book of Genesis, but is it possible that Moses actually did write its entirety, and Genesis chapter 1 is poetry, and Genesis chapter 2 is the actual narrative? You remember we even read it. Let's go back to it. Um, at the, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, it says this. <clears throat> Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done. And, by he, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God created. Period. Done. End of po- poem. 
this is the history, right? This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the, the field had grown. This is now, now he's saying now this is the history. This is the more of the how-to that God did it in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 is worship. Genesis 2 is information. See? Um, so if Genesis 1, number 5, were literal solar days, why isn't that repeated in Genesis chapter 2? Number 6, there would, have, there would not have been enough time on the sixth day for Adam to name all the animals. Did you know that God said on the sixth Adam, Adam was naming the animal, animals on the He names the livestock, the birds, the beasts. You know that there's approximately 10 million species. Now, presuming that there's less back then, and maybe he even kind of just named the heads of different kind of classes and types of families, it still staggers the mind. There's only, there's only 86,000 seconds in the day, right? Like, he would have had to name the animals at .009 seconds but per animal, right? Oh, and by the way, the, on the same day God created Eve and they got married. That's a busy day. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you think? <laughs> so it's probably like more like point oh 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 nine, because you know marriage is kind of a big deal. Um, number seven, Genesis chapter two, verse five implies that nature operated normally during the creation. In other words, plants needed the sun to grow. People needed water. Right? All of the, all of the basic functions of the natural world. Um, they weren't held up super, I mean, everything is held up supernaturally, but what I mean by that is it, it wasn't as if, like, God said, the sun isn't here, and I'm going to just kind of make the, the plants grow supernaturally, which he could have, but that's not what scripture says. In verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant on, uh, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain, right? Plants need rain. Plants need the sun, Oh, did you? I, I'm not. I'm no biologist. Is that biology? No, that's that's people. What's what's the plant one? Biology. biology. I'm no <laughs> I'm no biologist, obviously, um, but I do know that plants need the sun and they need water to grow. But day three, trees are bearing fruit, and the sun has not been made yet until day four. See, Genesis two, verse five implies that it needed the sun and rain for it to grow. So how is it growing on day three? When You see what I mean? You see the problems here? That we have to, we have to a ask these questions. If these are chronological days or even ages, how is it possible? How do plants reproduce without insects or hummingbirds or the sun, you see? Considering this, I don't think that the Bible demands a young earth, and I don't think that the Bible demands that the order in which God created in Genesis 1 is necessarily exactly the order in which he created. You see, I think it's a, po a poetic account of God as the author and creator of life. <clears throat> Each day should be seen, I think, more as a determined period of time, morning and evening, at a start and a finish, set out by God in creating, and also not necessarily the order in which he created. Genesis 1, well, okay, so what is Genesis 1 doing then? What's the point of it? What can we learn from it? 
Genesis 1, I think, provides more of a framework, okay? And that is pointing to God's intention or his purpose in creating, a framework. That's some, some, um, some teachers in theology call it the framework hypothesis. And let's go back again to some of those diagrams that I showed you before. <clears throat> God is providing for us a framework in creating. So on, on the column on the left, you see days one, two, and three. These are immovable objects, lights, sky, sea, dry land, vegetation, you see? And then in columns, the, the second column, days four through six, are movable things. The sun and the moon in their orbit, right? Birds and fish fly. Right? There's, there's an order, there's a poetic order to this. Day six, land animals and human beings, right? These are movable things. But, but secondly, if we can kind of move to the next one here, we see also that these are also rulers over which uh, uh, the inhabitants are rulers of the habitation, okay? So in other words, the sun and the moon, day four, rule the night sky and they rule the day sky. They rule the habitation, see? On day two... Birds rule the air, and fish rule the sea. That's on day two. The, uh, in day two, God creates the skies and the sea, and on day five, he fills them with the inhabitants that rule those things. Day three, God creates the dry land and vegetation and fills them with animals, the, the inhabitants, human beings, and human beings ultimately ruling over God's created thing. So what we have here are two things that God is the creator and author of life, being the king and ruler of all creation, and God had, has created us to imitate him in that rulership over his creation. You see, to me, that is the point, the message, the meaning of Genesis chapter 1. And we shouldn't get so bogged down into the exact how-to of how God created, um, because I don't think that that's the point of it. Remember that phrase, without form and unfilled. Days one through three are giving form, while days four through six are filling those forms. God creates inhabitants for the habitation, birds for the sky, fish for the sea, people for the earth, sun and stars for the, for, for the, the heavens. The inhabitants rule that habitation, the sun ruling the day, Man ruling the earth, moon ruling the night, you see? So Moses is more concerned, I think, about the framework, the theme, the purpose of God's creation than exactly with the how-to and the amount of time it took. And you see all these things that I think we kind of um, understandably impose on the text, but I don't think if we really think about it or the point of the text. Now what purpose, let's talk about this a little more, even though we've kind of hinted about it. The purpose of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is staggering and humbling. Because I think when we really think about why God has created all things and why he created us, it gives us an identity, a reason in which we know why we're here to begin with. We're not just kind of, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be mysterious to us what our purpose is. There is a purpose in creation that God gives to us that really should show us 
not only what he's like, but who we're like, which is amazing. We can see themes stretching over the creation story regarding God's purpose in creation, and we can see the following things. The first thing, which is so amazing, is that God wants to be with his creation. That he's not distant, he is not separate. There's an idea in philosophy, um, in certain forms of theology, that, that say that God is the creator, but he is not interested in his creation or he, and he does not maintain life in creation. So in other words, he, it's almost like a, like a clock that you wind up, you, you wind it up, so we needed someone to wind us up, but then he, he puts us down, lets us to ourselves, and now he's gone off and done something else. See, that's called deism. That there is a God that created us, but he is not interested in having relationship with us, and he does not interact with us. And, we, and by the way, we don't need him to continue on in our existence. So there's a God somewhere, but we just don't know him, and it doesn't really matter. See? But the, the story that we read in Genesis chapter 1 is much different because God is with his creation. God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. God is naming things, and that's an image in the ancient Near East of love and relationship. You see? So God is not just some distant thing that we relied on for our beginning. God is our maker who we need daily, not only to live, but to love. Everything that we have comes from him. He is with us. I am with you to the ends of the earth, scripture says. Isn't that incredible? That God says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. We have an active, loving father in Genesis chapter 1 who is with his created thing, which he loves. You might feel alone this morning, all alone. You're you're in a room filled with people right now, and you might feel like there's no one in this room at all. Something's going on in your life, and you feel all alone. Friend, can I tell you something right now? That there is a God in heaven who loves you who created you and who did not create you to be alone. You are not trusting Christ. He's your creator and he loves you. The second reason that God created was so that we could fill the earth. Isn't that great? In other words, we got some work to do. We can imitate what God is like in our life. We can fill, and why are we filling the earth? Why are we going to the ends of the earth? Well, to love his creation, to care for his creation. My wife and I were talking last night because we were reflecting, and I I in particular was reflecting on a time when I was young and just kind of noticing in the church almost this animosity towards environmentalists, right? I don't know if you've ever had to interact with that before. And by the way, if, if that's been you, it's been me. So... Um, it's, it's just sometimes the culture that we end up in. And my, my wife and I were talking last night, and we, we were just kind of bewildered by why that would be. Why, why, are, why are Christians angry that people want to care for the world, for the earth that God made? God told us to do that. He didn't tell us to dump our oil down a drain or, you know, like, mindlessly kill and torture animals, right? He didn't tell us that. Those things, uh, there are laws against that in the Old Testament. 
Sometimes I think the church is fighting the wrong battles. <laughs> we should be people that outmatch the world in caring for this world. Right? We should be the best environmentalists on earth. We should be caring for and, and order, creating order and loving the created thing more than anyone else. Because God's created us to do that. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the earth. That doesn't mean dump your trash out the window. It means love it. You see, God r- rules over us. Does he punch us and cut us and, you know, talk poorly against us? He doesn't do that. He, he care. Rulership implies a caring, right? So we have, as, a, as created people, a wonderful job in caring and filling the earth to care for that earth. And that's number three, to rule over the earth. Not only to fill it, but to care for it, to love the created thing. Now it's very easy, and this is the warning of Romans chapter 1, it's very easy to love the created thing more than the creator. And that is idolatry. And that's when it's sin. You see, I don't worship the earth, but I do keep it clean because God told me to. You see, his, his creation, to, um, he created us to fill the earth and to care for it, to rule over his creation, to be representative of him to the rest of creation. And that is, number four, to imitate God because we have been made in his image. You see, I don't really, you, you might think, I don't really feel like I'm made in God's image I got, I, you know, like, I got lots of warts, man. Like, literal ones and figurative ones. Like, I'm made in the image of, have you seen me? Right? Like, how, do you know? Forget about what we look, up, look like, right? But do you know what's in my heart at times? Well, friends, I'm not trying to suggest that we're not fallen and broken because of sin. But God's intention in creating us was to mirror him perfectly. To look like him exactly. And in Christ, because he saved us and forgiven us our sin, we get to do that again. We get to be him. To be his representative on this earth. To imitate God. His holiness, his love, his grace. So we have to ask ourselves a question. When we read Genesis 1, are we imitating the God that we see? Are we living like the God that we see? As, it's, as he's described all throughout scripture. And let's not forget one more, I think, very important and very crucial point. God demonstrates in Genesis chapter 1, you might not see this, but God demonstrates that he chiefly operates with his creation under grace. God demonstrates his grace and therefore our dependence, complete dependence on him. Did you notice over and over again? And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be fish in the sea and birds in the sky. And it was. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that before God created the birds, that he had a conversation with the birds and said, okay, birds, how good have you been today? Because if you haven't been good, I'm not going to create you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to have been created, right? It was not merited. Our very being is a gracious demonstration of God. You see, right off the bat, because we didn't create ourselves or we didn't come 
from other, another part of creation didn't create us, we should know immediately that if we are going to have a relationship with God, it has to be by grace. It has to be because he, uh, b- because we are being given something that we don't deserve. Does that make sense? We are not owed creation. The trees did not earn their existence. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And no fish or bird or bug ever merited their own existence. You see, but because God is gracious, he created us. And friend, because God is gracious, he saved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, but it is the gift of God. And God said, and it was so. You see, that applies to our rescue. And God said, and it was so. And you know how that liberates you? Now you can come to church out of love and not out of obligation, not out of fear that God will send you to hell or separate you from him. Because when you trust in Christ and your sins are forgiven, friend, God has given you his grace, his unmerited favor. He has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. Amen? He has done it. And God said and it was so. Friends, you're off the hook. We don't have to dance for God. We don't have to achieve for God. He's achieved for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, what burdens are you carrying? We all try to earn the favor of other people. And we know this, I think, very much when we're young um, and there's some doe we got our eye on. And we think she's the most gorgeous thing on earth and the awesomest thing on earth. So what do we do? Well, we iron our clothes. Right? We put on some cologne. We get a haircut. Right? The lady killer cut. That's what we do. Why are we doing that? We're trying to earn their favor, aren't we? We're on our best behavior, right? Aren't you lovely this evening? We don't talk like that, right? We don't buy flowers for people randomly. We're trying to win their favor. We're trying to earn their love. You see, you don't have to do that for God. God loves you already. You already have it. You see, the question is, do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you love him? Or is there something else that you love more? Can I invite you to love the creator who loved you first? Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you so much, Lord, that your words have power. And God said, and it was so. God, in spite of how sometimes uh, the, the word of God can Um, be difficult, and we have to do some work to understand it. Uh, God, we thank you, Lord, that the message of it is simple. The message of a gracious God who loves us, who created so that he might delight in us and share in a love relationship with us. God, we pray, Lord, that, that knowing this, that you even sent your own son when we rebelled against you and we were separated from you because of sin, God, that you even sent your own son to save us, to reconcile us with yourself. You wouldn't have us be separated from you. You did something about it, and you rescued us. Friend, if you're here this morning, 
Stop trying to do something about it and trust that God did something about it for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every word of God is true. He is the creator and the king and he is your bridegroom if you trust in him. You see, God has made a proposal to you and you need to respond to that proposal. Will you come to me? Be wed to me? You can say yes or no. But friend, if you say no, you will not be wed to God forever in heaven. You'll be separated outside of his family. And that will be loneliness. Trust that he is the Savior over sin, your sin. When he died for it, it was forever separated from you and put on him. Trust in Christ. Come to Christ. Believe in him. And you will be saved. And if that's you, cry out to God right now. These aren't magic words, but something like this, God, I am a sinner. And you created me for relationship with you, and I have worshipped and loved everything but you. I've sinned against heaven and earth. Forgive my sin in Christ. I trust that the death of Christ was for me, for my sin, and that because of the faith you've given me even in this moment, you are declaring me righteous. And you have reserved a place for me in your eternal kingdom. If that's you, friend, your sins are now gone. They're separated from you, put on Christ. And you have nothing to worry about ever again. God, how we love you and thank you for what you've done for us. We pray now, Lord, as we transition to this time of communion, that you would bless us as we remember the death and resurrection of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.